Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Fifth Quarter, Conversations Beyond the X's and O's with Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. And uh, this is our first uh, series, our, our first in our series of the crossover, where we talk to coaches, our former coaches who are now in private business, maybe as an entrepreneur, uh, as a business leader, and, and talk about their their journey from coaching into the, the world of business and what they've learned, what they're still learning, what they've been able to share with others from their ex experience in coaching. And so uh, very excited and honored to have George Evgen with us. Uh, I got to know George through his podcast, uh, Out of the Cubicle, which uh, I have uh, subscribed to and, and enjoyed it. And, and if you follow him on LinkedIn, he posts some great notes. I, I love his note-taking system uh, and, and the ideas and things that he, he learns from other podcasts. And I, I think that's what really kind of drew me to George was that he's a learner and he's always looking to learn and get better. And that's the kind of people mm -hmm. I want to surround myself and be around. And so, um, you know, I mentioned to, to Jeff this idea that, again, you know, George, I give you full credit for because in, based on our conversation recently, you know, you really got me thinking about the importance of uh, of reinventing and, and staying um you know, being prepared for the changes in life that can occur in an instant. So, so George, thank you for being a part of this. Let's let's start the conversation with with who you are. You know, your your journey yeah. from coaching to today, and and, uh, and and go with that. Yeah. Again, uh, both of you, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, yeah, my um, you know, I'm in St. Louis now. I'm I've been out of coaching. I'm 48. Uh, I believe I got out of coaching like at 35 or so. So I've been out 13 or 14 years. Where I where it was my life and it was my profession. I would say still say it's it is still my life, um, and, and I still uh, think about basketball every single day. I'm in the gym almost every single day, even though I'm not being paid for it uh, as as my uh, as my livelihood. Um, but probably you know I grew up outside of Seattle, um, in uh, in a town called Issaquah, which was really small at the time in the you know late '80s, early '90s. And I, I always wanted to coach. I was always fascinated with coaching with X's and O's. And uh, there was a player out there that really got me involved with basketball. He was a part of, at the time, the best high school basketball team in the state of Washington. It was the 1985 Mercer Island team that was led by Quinn Schneider. And, uh, and, and I watched Quinn play in high school a little bit and mostly on TV when they had it out there. And Quinn ended up going to Duke for four years, as many of your listeners may know that that follow basketball. And I just continued to watch him. So I became a big Duke fan um, and probably uh, too much of a Duke fan uh, for some of my friends, but followed Quinn all the years. And that was when, let's see, 80, you know, he was there in 86 or whatever, um, you know, and Coach K hadn't have been there too long. So I really, you know, followed the Duke program all the way through uh, to where they are now, uh, you know, quite a bit, but I always wanted to get into coaching um, and, and, and spent more time probably watching film and video and reading books. And I still have these old books from the eighties and nineties and Del Harris's book that was really great on defensive philosophy and theory um, and all these little books. Uh, and I was more into that than I was spending time on my own game. Um, but when I, I went to central Washington university for two years and um, started going to coaching clinics. And um, what really changed my career path was I went to Portland, Oregon at, you know, 19 or 20 years old and sat in the front row. And I remember Seth Greenberg was speaking. I, um, I believe Mike Bray may have been speaking. And that was when uh, Greenberg, I believe, was at Long Beach State or one of those California schools. Um, but I was sitting next to a gentleman that I thought was just there, you know, who I thought was just there as a part as a, an attendee. 
and we sat in the front row and I take, you know, to your point about my note takings, I'm not, I'm not very, uh, I don't have an ego. I'm not very arrogant, but the only thing I think I'm really good at is my penmanship. That's about it. I think I'm a, I'm probably average at everything else in my life, but I'm probably an A plus in my penmanship. But I was taking these great notes on everything everybody was saying. And I still have these notes to the day down in my basement. Um, and this guy sitting next to me, you know, asked me what kind of pen I was using. He made comments on my notes um, and he just, started talking to me and I had no idea who it was. Uh, and when the first session was over, he, uh, he said, Hey, I'd, I'd like to take you to lunch. And so I went to lunch with him. Uh, you know, he asked for my, you know, asked my name, all this sort of stuff. He told me his name and his, it was Don Meyer. And I had no idea as a 19, 20 year old who Don Meyer was at all, had no idea. Um, and so we had this great conversation at lunch and he asked me what I was going to be doing in the fall or where I was going to school and what my goals were and things of that nature. And I said, well, I'm going to be transferring to the University of Utah and I would love to be able to do something with their basketball program. Um, and he took my name and number down. And that that was on a Saturday. Uh, Monday morning, I get a phone call. Um, my roommate answers it. And um, and it, my roommate was on another call. And so he said, hey, I'm on, I'm on another call. You're going to have to call him back. And he, and he said, well, just tell him Rick Majerus called. And so my friend, you know, hangs up from Majerus and, and then comes out and tells me what's going on. And, and I, I'm like, you, like you, you idiot, right? You can't do that. So anyway, Majerus was kind enough to call back and we spent 30 or so minutes talking. He asked me if I wanted to be a walk on and play. And I didn't have an interest in that. I really, I just didn't, I, you know, um, you know, looking back on it, that may have been really good. Um, you know, for me. Um, but I just wanted to, I just wanted to be able to sit, take notes, be a part of the program, get involved in some things, maybe, uh, you know, outside of the court for him or whatever that might be. Um, so I turned that down, but I just, I started working as camps, um, got ingrained with the program those first couple of years, um, did a lot of film work for him, but I essentially, I was a manager, right? I don't want to paint this picture that, um, that it was, it was big to me at the time. Uh, and people were very kind to me, um, but I spent, you know, two to three years taking notes and rebounding basketballs for Van Horn and Doliak and Andre Miller and some of those players that, uh, that were, and that's when he was building something really good earlier, you know, the, the year before Majerus, you know, I think Majerus got there in 89 or 90, but he had uh, Josh Grant with him, and they were really good. And then Grant had graduated and Van Horn had come in and at that first year was coaches probably worst year at Utah. I think they were 14 and 14 or, or we were, but then right after that, if that was Van Horn's freshman year, then it just exploded. So anyway, I did that and was very fortunate in retrospect, you know, uh, beat myself up about it. When I think long and hard about that opportunity, there was more to take advantage of there. Um, I was, a I was, a a, a young, uh, naive and immature, college sophomore or whatever it was, right? I didn't uh, take full advantage of opportunities that were present and in front of me. And I beat myself up about that, but that's a good life lesson for me that I spend a lot of time with my boys on um, and taking advantage of opportunities. So, but anyway, from there, I went to um, a junior college in Colorado for a year and it was very instrumental for me there because I met a gentleman and worked with uh, one of my dear friends to this day, a gentleman named Greg Young. And Greg Young is one of the best human beings I've ever met, the best. And this past year, he was named uh, head coach at the University of Texas Arlington, a Division One school. And so we've remained very close and seeing him um, 
kind of climbed that ladder. But was really good about other than being with Coach Young at that uh, junior college was um, a twenty. I was twenty three, twenty four. We had a kid named Donald Harris that ended up playing at Texas Arlington, but uh, the assistant for Texas Arlington came in and recruited Donald. And um, I sat in the office and listened to this coach, this recruiter, recruit him. And this guy was good. He was my age. He had it. He had it all. It was really impressive. He had the, the sales pitch. You know, he was authentic. He was genuine. He was caring. He was um, a great salesman, um, really exciting and enthusiastic. And, um, and, and then he ended up going, uh, and now, now it was, it was Buzz Williams. So Buzz Williams, who then went to New Orleans and went at to Marquette and went to Virginia Tech is now at Texas A&M. Um, that was him. Right. And so I, and I stayed in touch with Buzz a little bit, but, um, was, that's the first time I met Buzz and I was like, man, he was great. But then from there I went and worked coach Myers camps and coach Myers best friend was a gentleman named Garth Pleasant. And Garth Pleasant was an NAI coach up in Michigan. And um, uh, Coach Meyer didn't really have anything on his staff or anything like that. He's always taking volunteers. But um, I was just traveling. I had my degree. I was just kind of, I had a credit card and I was traveling the Midwest, just working camps and running up credit card debt with no job, just trying to meet people and trying to find somewhere where I could coach. Um, and so I ended up in um, Rochester Hills, Michigan, and um, ended up living in, Garth Pleasant's basement for six or actually for a year lived in his basement, probably four to six weeks into it. His wife, Pat uh, looked at him one day and said, who's that kid living in our basement? Like he's been here for, he's been here for two months. Who is this kid? Um, and so, but they became family to me, Christmases and and birthdays and events and all this sort of stuff. And, and still is, as we're very close to this day. Um, and so anyway, I coached there for 10 years, became a head coach at a small university, ran into some mild health issues to scare me a little bit and enough to get me out of it. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I just I didn't do a great job of going from assistant to head coach. And that's just matter of fact. I just didn't do a good I just didn't do a good job flat out. Um, I reached my life's dream, my life's goal, my uh, this work from 15, 16, 17 years old to 35, became a head coach. Um, and it just didn't work. And, and a, a lot of, it was all on me. It was all on me. It wasn't on anybody else. I just did, I didn't do a great job. And then my, my health started going a little bit and the stress and the frustration, and I was just like, man, and, um, and I just got out of it. Yeah. And so that was, that's, I know that's long winded, but that's the kind of the story of my coaching career. Um, and, and it was great. I mean, so many experiences, so many great people, um, and so many, um, you know, I, I'd say this uh, in my podcast a little bit. One of my proudest achievements is those 10 years at Michigan um, at, at, at Rochester College up there in Rochester. I think I stood up in seven or eight weddings of former players, um, you know, former players that said, hey, you know, Coach George, I, you know, I want you in my wedding. Um, still in touch with all those kids. But it, uh, that, that we had really good kids, uh, really good program. It was a uh, it was a church school. So we had to get a certain type of player that really, you know, that would go to chapel and would go to Bible classes and would behave a certain way and stay away from alcohol and the dorm life and all that sort of stuff. So, but it was really a great opportunity and a great experience for me um, because I, I got to do a lot and it was really, I learned quite a bit being there. So again, long-winded, but yeah, that's kind of my background with it all. Coach, that's a, it's a great one. It might've been long for someone, not for uh, me. I thought it uh, was great. Yeah. I mean, and, and you touch on things and again, 
coaching, it is consuming of time. You miss a lot of things, but there's nothing better for than weddings, than birth of a child. I remember one right. of the first kids I recruited, uh, finding out she had cancer. She was a point guard that really helped me win a lot of games from Natchez, Mississippi, and she passed. I mean, there were so many highs and lows, and uh, there's so many things. But, Coach, obviously it sounds you reflect, and a lot of coaches don't. Um, You mentioned that you had trouble making the transition from an assistant to a head coach. Mm. You know, uh, my struggles, I was a head coach really early at a junior college for eight years, had great success, and you know, was young and dumb and thought I knew everything and a little bit of the opposite. Like at times I struggled when I went D1 as an assistant, you know, thinking, hmm, I've got to figure some other things out. Mm-hmm. But coach, maybe share some of those reflections on what what the problem was, what you would do different. Just give some insight to some young coaches maybe taking that step to the first chair. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of lessons there. And I made the joke years ago that I, you know, um, I, I should write a book on a hundred things not to do when you become a head coach. Cause I, I felt like I checked all those boxes. Um, one, the first thing I would do is I think every assistant coach that's out there should have those dreams of being a head coach. Not now that that's not to say if that's not your gig, right. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. I was with my friend. That's the head coach at Lindenwood. Um, last night and uh, we got together and had dinner together with our wives. And, and I mentioned to him, like, I would be the best assistant in the world right now. I'd be the, and I, and I don't mean that arrogantly. Like I I just get, when I get the job that somebody that is in that chair of a head coach has to do. And I have no desire to ever be a head coach again. I would go work for like my friend, I'd go work for him in a second if I could. Right. But I understand it would be about developing those kids, but at the end of the day, it would be about him winning and his program getting better and him shining and me helping sell his mission and vision and purpose and his strategies and all. Like I would be all in on it. Not that I wasn't earlier. I just get it now, right? And I have no dreams of ever becoming a a, a head coach again. I don't think about that at all. I think about trying to, uh, if I ever got back into coaching, it would be with the right people that I just love and and do everything I can to drive their mission. Right. But the first thing I would encourage people listening to this, that you should have those, if that's, if that's your gig and you don't want to be a life assistant, right. If you want to be a head coach, my, my first thing is I would be very aware of taking the right job. Um, I think that's so important. I wanted to be a head coach and I was 34 at the time. I was afforded an opportunity where I was at to do a lot. I, I did the, you know, I ran a lot of the practices. I did, you know, practice planning and I did the game planning and I was afforded the right to speak at timeouts and half. Like it was, I, I was given a great opportunity by who I worked for. He was super humble and, and wanted me to develop and grow and, and things of that nature. So I had that, but I was also ready to be a head coach. And I knew that, you know, my opportunities there were probably not going to be there. Right. You know, they just, they weren't my, my, the chances of me being a head coach at that university were probably not going to happen for, for some reasons. But um, so when this job came open and I was essentially contacted about it, um, I was ready. I was like, let's go, Uh, you know, and then went through the interviews and all that. And I even felt when I went through the interviews, it wasn't right. There was something not right about it for me. Um, the school was amazing. The people were amazing, but there was just something not right. I was so ingrained with where I was at. It was home. 
um, you know, I, I had helped uh, help that program and we were doing pretty well, but there was something about this other job that wasn't right. I ended up taking it. Um, so that would be lesson one, like be aware uh, that you're uh, of the job you're taking. Don't just take a job to take it. The other thing that if I could go back and do things different, I took over a, I would say a powerhouse. It was a, it was a power NAIA powerhouse. I replaced a coach that had been there 30 years. Um, he's in the hall of fame. Um, the school could have been named after him. And, um, I had to, uh, I had to keep their assistant coaches. So, and, and it was a weird, it was a strange deal because the, the, the players wanted the assistant coaches to be the head coach. Um, and they, and, and so I was new. And so I came in with a philosophy, uh, that was probably not aligned with what they were used to. And the thing I would do different is when you go into successful places, um, this is what I would tell myself. I'd say, George, this place has really been good. And if you go in and wholesale change everything, you're going to lose people. Um, they're going to get frustrated. Um, what you need to do is find out what they do well. Drills, terminology, the kids, like, you know, practice times, like meeting times, like any of this stuff, figure out exactly what they do great. Talk to everybody. Take it all in. Take your notes figure out and, and, and not that you can't go in and do your stuff and, and, and place your own standards and your stamp on the program. But I wish I could have went in and said, Hey, how do you guys spend the first 30 minutes of your practice? Like, how do you get them loose? How do you get them warmed up? What, who does it? Does the head coach do it? Does the assistants do it? Like what plays do you guys like? Um, what's the terminology? You guys are a full court press team. That was never really my gig. You know, uh, what if I gave an assistant time for this sort of press and I could just coach the details and let somebody else kind of own it. Like that would be, that would have really helped me really uh, would have helped me with that. Just kind of clinging to their traditions, their, the, the, what they're used to. So it didn't, I went in and rattled the cage, you know um, not in a bad way. I was just like, everybody was used to a certain way of doing things. Then all of a sudden somebody news here, you know um, you know, and I was very much kind of this Don Meyer guy of please and thank yous and yes, ma'am and no, ma'am and holding doors open and picking up trash and having notebooks and everybody's taking notes. All those Coach Meyer things, right, um, that we did at at my at the other school, my the Rochester school. Um, and I came in and it was it was, uh, you know, you still got to be you, but you just got to really figure that out um, where that line is to try to keep people. Um, that would have been better. You know, th those are just a few of the things off the top of my head that I wish I wish I had done much better at. I mean, Coach, you bring up so many points, and obviously the older we get, the wiser, just, you know, listening a little bit more. And yeah. you just brought up some great points. What skill would you tell a young assistant who wants to be a head coach, one, two, three things that uh, they should master and own? Ooh, if you want to – Try to do, I, I'd try to be as involved with everything, right? I would try to be, uh, I, hopefully you work for somebody that will allow you to do as much as possible so you can get the full scope of what it takes to run a program, right? And I was afforded that where I was at with Rochester. This The coach I was with let me do everything. Um, I had my hand in everything. I had a voice in everything. So I was, uh, you know, I started to develop and took notes on what I, you know, and it's okay to sit there and take notes on, Hey, I would maybe do this a little different or just keep things, you know, you don't want to, um, you know, amplify that stuff in front of people, but it's always, you know, I say this, you're always the suggestion maker, um, you know, as an assistant. So make, make suggestions, um, 
And then the head coach is the decision maker. And I stay, I say that professionally with what I do now for a living. I'm, I'm still, you know, a suggestion maker with where I'm at and what I do. Um, but when, when it's time to make decisions, let's make those decisions and let's make sure you're supporting that message uh, across the team, you know, but try to be as involved with you as uh, with as much as possible, try to own as much as possible. Um, you know, and, and I would, I, I, this is just me. I, I would bring as much energy, like your, your mission as an assistant should be to try to take as much baggage and much off of the head coach as, as you possibly can. We have no idea what those head coaches have to deal with from parents and media and expectations and alumni and boosters and camps and recruiting and all like everything like NAIA, all division one, you know, and your job could be just like, what can I take? What can I own? What can you give to me that you don't have to deal with it? Like the friend of mine that's coaching, he's like, you know, those assistants, you know, don't come with problems all the time to the head coach. If there's problems, go solve these problems, go solve problems. And it's not that you don't want your head coach to know everything that's going on. They should have, we've seen that in college basketball, these coaches that say, I didn't know. Right. And, and then they get busted for it. Like down at Louisville or some of these other places saying, you have to know, you have to know all this stuff that's going on in your program. So you do have to have that audit trail of that. Now, some of that stuff's extreme where, Hey, yeah, those co- your head coach better know some of this stuff that's going on, but be a problem solver. And, and the thing we talked about last night when I was out with my friend was, just bring an energy every day. Right. And when he introduced me to his team and I really appreciated what he said, and it's not an arrogant thing on me, but it made me feel good because of, of maybe how he thinks about me or maybe a perception he may have, and maybe others do as well. But his comment when he introduced me to his team was this guy knows a lot about the game and he's as positive a coach that I've been around. And I was like, well, that's, that's awesome. Right. Like I'm intense. I'm passionate. I love it. I love teaching. I love watching people get better. But for his comment of this is as positive a coach that I've been around was awesome. Right. Like we're teaching, we're demanding, we set high standards, but people know our intent. They know our heart. They know that we're positive. We said this. um, I forgot who I said this to last night. You know, it's probably a Don Meyer thing, but you shout praise and whisper criticism. Right. You just, you know, be really positive and, and enthusiastic and passionate and teach and approve and correct in such a way that people uh, understand your intent and understand that you're just trying to get people better as opposed to demeaning um, and, and just build people up. You know, and that's, uh, you know, those are the things I think, I, you know, if I were an assistant again, I'd sell that mission and vision the coach has. I would take things off his plate. I would problem solve for him and I would he could count on me every day. Uh, that I'd be loyal, I'd be hardworking, but I would have energy, passion, purpose, and I would, uh, and he could count on me. He could always count. Like if I do, and I wouldn't think about a head coaching job. I mean, I think it's okay to have a notebook of, of notes and things that you want to do and things maybe you do different or drills you think of and strategy tactics and all that. But man, I would, I'm all in. Like when, when's that season's going, it, I'm all in on it. And whatever happens, I, you know, I know, People love hanging out in the lobby in San Antonio when the final four is going on. And, you know, I know that's the second part of the season that people really like, but man, I would just, you know, I, that, but I'm also 48 and have no intentions of doing that, you know, and I know there's ego to that. And I know people want to be head coaches and jobs and all that sort of stuff, but man, be locked in. You know, I know we've all heard the saying, just be where your feet are, be present, you know, kick tail where you're at, like do all that, you know, all that other stuff people will, you know, that will come to you. That will come to you. Don't worry about it. It will come to you. Right. And uh, if it's there, take advantage of it, you know, but make sure it's the right thing for you and your family. 
George, I, I remember the Coach Meyer quote. We were talking about jobs. Yeah. And he, you know, he said that some jobs are stepping stone jobs and some are kidney stone jobs. So <laughs> you're right. It's like there's so many Coach Meyer quotes I, I think of, and, and you're absolutely right about shout praise, whisper criticism. Yeah. So that was I, that was definitely Coach Meyer. So now you make the transition from basketball into the private sector and specifically IT. Oh, yeah. And, and, right. And, and right. I cannot imagine a, 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 a huge the gap, the contrast of what that was like. Yeah. I, I guess a couple of things. Number one, talk about the transition. What, what type of resistance did you meet from some of the people that you're starting to work with? Because you're you're an outsider coming in, in essence, and, and how how you made that transition and what were some of the, the, I guess, some of the big lessons you learned early on in that? Yeah. So when I got out of coaching at 34, 35 years old, my brother was here in St. Louis and my brother and I, we couldn't be closer. We're, we're, we're super close and, but we're very different. Uh, and we're not that different actually. I mean, we're just different. He he's always been a computer geek and I was the jock, right? So he was the geek. I was the jock. He never played sports growing up. He was into it. Uh, and, but that wasn't his thing. He ended up being a Russian major and went to Russia for college and, um, and then moved back here to the States and ended up teaching himself the computer industry, like literally taught himself how to, how to write websites and how to develop and, and how to be a, a, a coder and how the computer world works. Moved here to St. Louis and was really instrumental in some now global programs that he started. You know, I'm guessing you, you and your listeners may not know, but there's something called Inetta. And there's a group like these user groups in certain language stacks. My brother started that stuff. Like the Inetta stuff is like a global thing. And these, uh, it was called .NET user groups. My brother started those things here in St. Louis and then it spread. But because he started it, he got really plugged in with Microsoft because Microsoft was developing their, their development stack on, on how they wanted to write code and, 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 and technologies and products. And they, my brother was just kind of this door beater and started beating down their door for resources and recognition and for money and all this sort of stuff. And Microsoft started obliging with that. And so my brother got really tight with Microsoft. So, and I just give that background because he was in St. Louis killing it. He just was, and he was writing financial applications and he was, and, and I don't mean it's not on me. It's on my brother. I'm, and I, so I don't mean this arrogantly. He was, a, he's a big shot in St. Louis. He just, at that point, he, and, and, I still consider him a big shot in St. Louis, but he was, he was really doing well and everybody knew him, but he said, he called me every day when I was going through the, the headaches of being a head coach and trying to figure out what the heck to do with my life. And if this is even what I wanted anymore, he was calling me every day. And, and then, it, and then he was like, Hey, th you need to move down here, um, live with me. And, and I have the resources to get you going and in this industry. And we're talking about writing code, right? And, um, and I didn't know what that meant. And so I was researching a little bit. And so we ended up moving down here and I got books. So it was, a, I moved down here and I got a job at Starbucks. So I'm 34, 35 years old. And, and it, it was like very humbling. I was like, you know, I've got a wife, right. And then she ended up getting pregnant uh, with, with my first son. And, and I'm like, I got to have a job, right? I mean, re me reading books and going to user groups and sitting on a computer all day, making no money, this isn't going to fly too much longer. So, you know, I, I, I went to Starbucks and filled out an application and got paid eight bucks an hour at 35 years old. 
And I'm sitting here going in my mind going, well, I was making X amount as a head coach and I had newspaper articles and I had a, I had a radio show and I had all this. And I'm literally at 3.30 in the morning watering the lawn at Starbucks and opening the store for eight bucks an hour. And so it was humbling. And I was like, that's when I started thinking, I was like, there's an end game to this. You're right. I can, I can do anything. I, I can humble myself, whatever my family needs, whatever I need to do, whoever I, whatever I need to do to become who I need to become. I don't care. I don't care. Um, and so we went through it, you know, for actually it was quicker than I thought it was like five months, but I would work at Starbucks from three 30 to 10 30. And then right when I, and then my breaks, it like, it was such a weird deal. You know, you take, you have to take 30, a 30 minute break and 10 minute breaks. And I'd grab my computer books and I'd sit outside and I'd have note cards and flashcards and I would just study any chance I get. And then I would go from 10 30 to nine o'clock at night, just writing code, reading books, reading articles, doing things online. And like, no joke, it was hard. It, and there were many times I was just like, I can't do this. This is for other people. Cause it's, it is hard. Like the people that are elite developers writing complex uh, products, complex solutions, man, they're, they're something else. They're really something else. But anyway, after five or so months, I just started applying for entry-level jobs and got lucky with one. And then I was there for maybe four or five months. And then I ended up going to another company where I was a bigger company, more responsibility. But I, at that, that was a great job for me because I was surrounded by a great team, um, a, probably the best software team I've been around, but everybody wanted to help everybody and everybody wanted to help me. And so it just kind of got my career going. Um, but, but I, I haven't written code for a while, but every, it, everything I did uh, coaching wise, I thought for a long time was a waste. I was like, man, I just wasted, you know, 18 years old to 34 years old. And I just was it wasn't worthwhile. It wasn't valuable to me. And now that I'm in the kind of the second part of my development career where I'm leading teams, I'm not writing code. I'm leading teams, leading process, change process, delivering software, motivating, inspiring, challenging, stretching, doing all this stuff that I used to do with 18 year olds. I'm just now trying to do that with 40 year olds to 65 year olds. Right. And, um, it, and, but all those things I learned and the language and how to, how to, figure people out and what challenges and motivates and inspires individuals and how to develop a mission and a purpose and to, ha- and to figure out how you're winning and losing. And um, I'm doing that now and, and love, couldn't love my job more, um, you know, with that change, but it was hard. Yeah. I went from, I went from, my, my brother said this, he said, George, you've got to figure out if you can go from a gym to a cubicle because you're used to being in gyms and you've been in a gym since you've been 10 years old. And now you're going to be in a cubicle for 10 hours a day, right? And you've got to figure out if you can handle that. And it, it was hard. Like, there's no, there's no question. It was hard. But, um, and that was kind of that idea of my, my own podcast of getting out of your cubicle, right? Getting out of it, not being locked into it, get engaged, get motivated, lead change, you know, and own your, own your career was kind of that idea. Um, but yeah, again, you know, kind of long-winded, but that, that was, it was a big shift. It was scary for sure. No, that's, that's, ins- I think number one, that's inspiring for, in- for us to hear, to know that it's possible, you know, that you did it. And I, I'm, I'm trying to remember if it was Gary Vee or somebody. And I think I even got this from one of your notes, something that something to the effect of if someone else has done it before, that means you can do it. Yeah. And, and so being able to, 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 to take that. And, and like you said, humble yourself, know that there's a, a there's a, a greater purpose 
there's something greater that you're you're working through and that this is going to come to an end at some point. So during that process from from the you know being in business now with the podcast, it sounds like you've basically taken the same kind of learning attitude of, of what you know you you're, you were watching film, you're reading the books. And now you're you're just continuing the same thing. It's just you've changed the authors and 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 reading and studying different content. So, who would you say now are the guys that you're or the people that you're you're listening to that you're reading? Um, I, I know a couple of that you've shared on your you know on right. the podcast and and as well as you know um, you know in in the notes on LinkedIn. But who are some that you just I guess number one that really jumped out that you find that are, are very relevant, helpful, and maybe one or two things that you've taken from them that have been oh. that have been super you know super helpful. Yeah, no, I, I love that question. Absolutely love it. Because my, yeah, I'm I'm driven right now to win. I, I, I've come to this conclusion at 48 years old that I wish I had a 28. When we talk earlier about taking advantage of opportunities, and I wish I had done that, you know, while I was at Utah, um, I, I, I'm, I'm driven so hard right now because I, I, I get it. I get it that anything is possible. I get it that I can do, be, have anything. I believe that. And I, and, um, you know, I think the people that are just killing it right now in life and crushing it are those people that figure that out as early as possible, right? Those people that figure it out at 16, 18, 22, 24, that they're sitting around saying, I can do anything and I can be anything and everything is possible. And I just didn't really hit that until I was like 43, you know, where I was sitting here going, I, I wanted more out of life. I just always had this internal thing that, and I, it's not, I'm not trying to be arrogant or anything with it, but I just felt I had greatness in me and I didn't, wasn't getting it. I wasn't getting it at all. I wasn't happy with myself. I wasn't uh, pleased with the direction I was going. I, I, I felt like I was losing all the time. I, I didn't like myself. Um, I was beating myself up about all this. And then I just kind of hit this point where, man, I'm capable of greatness. I've got it in me. Um, and, and I deserve it. If it, you've got it, you've got to earn it. You, like you've got in order. I tell the kids that I work with every day, you all have it in them, but you're not just going to get it. You've got to earn it. You've got to go out and grind every day and do great things every day. You've got to build momentum and confidence and direction um, because it's in you, but you just don't get it. You just don't get it. You've got to really deserve it and you deserve it by working and by earning it. But to your question, I, th I was thinking about and reflecting on how I got consumed with consuming content. Like it's, it's on, it's every single day. I've got to get into it. I've got to have somebody inspire me every single day with the content and the people I'm around and listening to. Um, they just kind of get me going again. Right. And one was Gary V Gary V's phenomenal, but he, and his message is very repetitive. I get it. But when I started listening to him for the first time, the thing that changed my life and started me going down this road was him. And it was a very simple phrase. And it was, you have to be very self-aware with who you are. And that's it. Know who you are. And then don't apologize for that. And don't care what other people think. That we spend so much time with thinking about how, what we're doing. And it's good to figure out how this affects my wife or my children and all that. But the things I want in life, the direction I want to go, the interests, passions, purpose, goals, Everything that I want in life, me going after those things and having people laugh at me, saying it can't be done, saying I'm a lunatic, saying it's never going to happen. You can't listen to those people, right? And so I was, when Gary V started talking about being really self-aware and not allowing yourself to be judged or not taking the judgment on of other people 
that changed my life. I because there's nothing that it, nothing I shouldn't say that it is very hard for me to press record on my podcast because I'm afraid that somebody's going to say something. Somebody's not going to like it. Somebody's going to say I suck or that it's worthless and it's garbage and I should never like. That's hard, right? But then you get in your mind, you're like, who cares? Right. And Gary V or somebody that I consume said, Hey, a hundred years from now, when it's, you know, 2121, right? Is that right? I'm gone. And every, and it's all gone. Right. And, and it, nobody's going to think about me and nobody's going to laugh at anything I tried to do and nobody's going to remember it. Right. But so why not go for it? Who cares? Right. Um, and Gary V does say this. He says, you go to a, a old folks nursing home. And those homes are filled with one thing. They are filled with regret. They're filled with regret of old people sitting around saying, I could have done this. I should have done that. I shouldn't have listened to that. I should have listened to that. Regret, regret, regret. And, and I talk to, to the groups I speak with, regret turns into blame. If I regret certain things that didn't go my way or I didn't knock out, if I'm not a champion and a winner and somebody that owns everything, then I start blaming people, right? You know what? man, I could have done this. I could have been a great division one coach and all this, but you know what? Jeff and Layson did this. And the reason I didn't do it's because they didn't support me or what? No, right. You've got to own everything. Um, and who cares about that? So Gary, but the stuff I'm consuming now, I, I've got this that close to me. I've got a book right here called the iron cowboy redefining impossible. This guy did 50 triathlons in 50 States and 50 days. I have no intention of doing that. I have no desire to do that. I don't have a desire to do one triathlon stretched over a year. I, that doesn't interest me, right? But this guy developed a mindset and he lost everything. He, you know, foreclosures, no house, four or five kids, wife, all that sort of stuff. And he had a purpose. He had a mission. He had a team that believed him. I'm, I'm listening right now or just finished the winning book by Tim Grover that just came out. This is phenomenal. And if, and if you, um, some of the kids I coach got this, but I, I warned their parents. There's a lot of, there's some rougher language in that. Um, I, I, I got this, that nobody would be interested in this other than me, but it's called the Toyota way 24 or whatever, 14 management principles on how Toyota builds their process. What Toyota does, how they build cars is unbelievable how they do it. And it's coaching and it's leadership. And it's process and it's leaning things out. It's making people efficient. It's making, allowing people to enjoy their jobs. It's allowing people to have a voice in their careers. Like they've got it down and no, we're trying to, and this is valuable for what I do and, and the place I work at um, on just of, of, of streamlining and fine tuning process and, and people. Um, but I listen to a lot. Listen, I listen to Ed Milet almost every day and Andy Frasilla almost every day. Um, I'm, I'm getting to know, um, David nurse really well. Um, we're exchanging some text messages back and forth. He runs an amazing mastermind that I'm trying to get involved with. And David nurse has a book called pivot and go that I have up here on my bookshelf. I'd encourage everybody to get that. Um, I still consume Tim Ferriss and his content. Um, anything that, you know, you can't say this is a Don Meyer thing. You can't, you can't go to every coaching clinic and, and take everything and then go and change your entire philosophy on Monday morning with your teams, right? You take what you take the bits and pieces that are valuable, that are that change the dials, that enhance what maybe you already do, or language that helps you uh, teach better, coach better, and lead better. Um, so I try to take as much in, take my notes, refer to my notes, 
and then try to move the needle with me, my family, and um, the kids I work with on a daily basis, and definitely what I do professionally with my teams. Um, no question. So you take it all in, get the value, uh, get what moves the, do- uh, the needle for you personally and for your teams and your family, and start implementing, right? Um, and that's, that's what I geek out on. I just love it. You know, it's one of these things. It's different in the world, but I still talk this way. I talk with my teams every day about winning. And we're, we write cancer software, right? That, you know, is important. Like it saves people's lives and um, it's valuable and important software. But we, I talk to them every day about winning, winning the day. There's something in software called a sprint. There's something in software, which is a quarter essentially called a PI. Uh, and, there, and then you have your releases of great software that help people live. And we, we've got to win every day and we've got to win every sprint. We've got to win every PI because it's, it's important. It's significant. It's life-changing, but it's also the livelihood of the people that we're working with, that they enjoy their jobs, that they're, that they're not sitting there, you know, uh, not engaged and, uh, don't like their jobs. Um, I'm driven by whomever I'm with that they enjoy what they're doing because listen, software development isn't an eight hour job. There's like, I, I guarantee you 745 right now on a Sunday night, somebody on my team's writing code. Somebody's writing code to get something done because it's a 24-7 thing, just like coaching is. And they're they're working. And if you don't enjoy it, and if it's a burden and you don't like the leadership and you're not improving and you're not developing and you don't think you're contributing and you don't think you have a voice and you're just taking tickets and you're on a hamster wheel, man, you're going to build resentment, right? And 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 it's going to be so hard to be elite. And I use I use all the coaching phrases with my teams. We talk about winning and being elite and improvement. And uh, I, I told them the last release, I was like, you guys competed. You competed to be a better version of yourselves professionally with this product and showing everybody in the company that you're the best, right? Um, like we have a big global team and I'm not interested in being mediocre and I want to have the best team in the entire company. And that's competing and it's improving and it's coaching and it's leadership and it's process refinement. Um, and it's making sure people enjoy their jobs. People that enjoy their jobs work better and deliver more and are, you know, and will go above and beyond when needed, right? All that sort of stuff. But it's the same thing, you know, trying to coach 18 year olds, right? They want, they want to feel valued and, and that they're contributing and that they're important, that they have a voice, that you, you have a, a servant heart and that you're, you have a great intention for them and their development and where they're going to be when they're seniors, right? And, and those people will go above and beyond for you. It's the same stuff, um, just a different demographic uh, in terms of age and and uh, things like that. So, yeah. Coach, your, yeah. Ener- your energy, <laughs> your motivation, it, it's great. But I, I think one of the things I'll take away is just your vision. Like, I don't want to play poker with you, play pool, chess, because I think you're the guy that's always two steps ahead of everyone. No, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you beat my tail, man. But no, I, pre- I appreciate that. I appreciate that. My wife will think that's funny. <laughs> well, one of the things, like I did 25 years college coaching, and I yeah. never thought of the end game. You know, if you asked me, so what are you going to do? You're going to coach forever? Yeah, probably. And then maybe, you know, golden parachute. I don't know. I'll be an AD somewhere. I don't you know, would you advise people on to think of what that next step, you use the word pivot, it's a basketball, it's a business, but how would you advise people to think? Because we're especially, you know, yes, salaries are good, but with AD turnovers, 
there is coaching turnover like never yeah. before. And what would you say to somebody about thinking of end game next step? Well, I'm going to look at it this way. If my son came to me, either of my sons came to me and said, dad, I want to coach. And they're 18 and they're going to, you know, hopefully, you know, maybe be able to play after high school. And if they came to me and said, dad, I want to coach. What I would counsel them on is I think you do need, I think you need like, what do you want? What is, what is the end game? What do you, um, how, how does this look? Five, 10. I think you need those plans, right? But coaching is rough. You just sit there and say, you know, hey, in 10 years, 15 years, by or by the time I'm 35, I want to be a head coach, or you know, whatever that might be, or I want to coach at this level. I think I think that's you, I, I think that's great. I think you should do that, right? I do have a I'm 48. I've got a I've got a 10. I know what I want to be doing at 50, and I know what I want to be doing at 60. I know exactly it. So it's no different, and I and I shouldn't approach it different just because it's coaching. But what I will say is if you, as you develop those plans and start maybe developing the habits, rituals, routines, and tactics to maybe knock those things out, right? And then, but I, I would always come back to, you got to be really present with where you're at. You know, there's a great, it's a Don Meyer thing. I apologize for quoting Don Meyer. I just have consumed so much of him and his stuff. But Frosty Westerling or Westerberg, who was a football coach out at Pacific Lutheran, actually where I grew up, he wrote a book that Coach Meyer hawked for years called You Make the Big Time Where You're At, right? Just because you're a JUCO coach or a high school coach or NAI coach, that's big time. Like it's big time. I told my buddy the other day that's at a division two school that he's got the best job in America. And I believe that he's got an amazing job. You know, that, you know, if that job were opened up, there'd be 300 resumes on that AD's desks in 24 hours. Right. Um, but so whatever that goal is, but wherever you're at, you make the big time right there. And then you serve, you serve that head coach. Um, and that, and you'd be present for that whole year. Like, you know, it's one of those things you hear, you know, these baseball players or basketball players that say, Hey, I'm not negotiating my contract during the season. Cause when the season starts, I'm locked in on that. Right. And I'm going to stay with that and not get distracted by it. Like, yeah, don't be thinking about other jobs. Right. Just be locked into making sure that you win the day, you win the sprint that, you know, two weeks, you win, you know, that you're prepared and organized and, and deliberate with the, uh, the game plan for the next game and that you're supporting that head coach and taking taking problems away from him or her and and, and building those players up because that's it. Right. And then. I know there's time to try to, you know, everybody would love to be at that, you know, top level, right. Being at Wichita state or in Indiana or Michigan state, because you want the opportunity to go against the best, recruit the best, play against the best, see how good you are, see how good, what you're actually capable of. Everybody would love that. Everybody would. Um, and so, yeah, if you want to do that, I, I think you should carve those goals out. But I think like, I would tell my boys to, to, to be really humble, to be hardworking, to serve, to 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 uh, amplify and navigate the mission, purpose, and values of that head coach, and don't go chasing around and networking around to find people to do something for you. Don't network to just go meet Tom Crean, and because that guy might be able to do something for you. You go there to learn, to serve, and for nothing in return, right? And 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 that will carry you. Um, and then you know, because it's a it's a grind, but you know, I don't want. I wouldn't want my boys to have a, a, a hidden agenda, uh, a hidden intent. The intent should be to learn, uh, to make it better where you're at with whatever level you're at and to serve and amplify the mission of whom, whom your boss is and, and to learn from as many people. Buzz Williams, 
You know, when I told you at the start of the episode, I met him at 24 and that little old beat up uh, gym at Lamar Junior College in Lamar, Colorado, Buzz Williams, every single day for years, wrote handwritten letters to head coaches asking for just information, just wanted to learn. And I think he wrote it to all levels. Did he write them to head division one coaches? Yeah, absolutely. But did he also write them to, you know, the guy that's at Tennessee Tech or Tennessee Martin? That's just some that, that is a low end. Uh, you know, it's you know what I mean by low end. I don't mean that in a diminishing way. But, you know, the low division one guy, he wanted to learn from everybody because he, he was consumed with it and he wanted to get better and, and he wanted to network and meet people. But he was driven and his intent was good and his heart was good. And it was built around him getting better and and um, trying to serve people. Um, you know, that's my perspective. So. Um, yeah, that, those are the things I would probably take away with that. George, you mentioned um, earlier talking about David Nurse and, and, yeah. the, and, and the mastermind. How important is it to, to surround yourself and to get with other people who are wanting to go in the same direction and, and be able to learn from them? And, and, and like you said, you can give value at the same time. How 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 would you go about doing that? Because I, I I totally agree with you with the networking, and I think yeah. that was one of my biggest problems early on when I yeah. networked was I was networking more for myself, and I was I even mentioned the other day in a conversation that now I look at networking more if what I can give value to others, like mm. when I first reached out to you, and then how I can help like my former players. Being yeah. able to connect them with someone, maybe if they're looking at a job situation or they're looking at this particular situation, but but just share a little bit about how you've yeah. been able to do that and and the importance of of you know you do it with books, you do it with you know with 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 podcasts, but you're also doing it with relationships as well. Yeah, the one you know I got on LinkedIn and just to be honest with you, I just started connecting with everybody. I I was just sitting there, click click click, connect connect connect, um, and then following up with people that were in an industry that I, that I was interested in coaching, leadership, motivational speaking, um, the software space that I'm in, um, and just started connecting to give this example. When I was doing that, I reached out to somebody and then found the, uh, the connections I had. Then I just started reaching out to people that uh, were in the coaching leadership, motivational kind of spaces, started sending them notes about being on my podcast. Hey, would, would be interested. I'd love to learn about you. I'd love to hear your journey and your story. I'd love to have you on the podcast uh, and had some people on that. I just never met. And to give you the example, I, I met a gentleman um, up in Chicago named Ed Molitor. Now, Ed Molitor used to coach college basketball. He was at Texas A&M. He was at Creighton. He's best friends with Porter Mosier at Oklahoma. They're buddies. And Coach Molitor and I've just hit it off. So I would consider him a friend, like a good friend, like somebody that I, um, we're, we're missing each other on some phone calls right now. But if I needed advice or um, if I've had him on the podcast twice and we just kind of go back and forth, but I started supplying, he, he runs a great podcast. You guys want a good podcast, go to the Athletics of Business by Ed Molitor. It's great podcast. Um, but I started doing my notes for his podcast just because I know he, he'd like it. And so now- now I'm doing it and he loves it. And, and I don't want anything. He's even come to me and said, George, let me pay you for these. Do my podcasts. Give me some notes. I'll give you X amount. And I'm like, coach, you don't got to do it. I'm doing it anyway. Right. And, and I love to do it. And I love your content. And I love your message. And I love your friendship. And I love what you're supplying me with. Like, I don't need any of this. Right. I'm doing it anyway. Right. And it's helping me like build his, it's helping me help him and build his own podcast. Um, but I would, in the day of, in the age of social media, 
where you can isolate your, on your interests, your passion, your goals. And all of a sudden you can have a thousand people and that are worth connecting with, having a conversation with people that you can serve, people that you can learn from, people that you could have conversations with and take strategies, tactics, ha- like all that, right? Like I'm, I'm driven on habits and the habits of, of champions and habits of success. How do they start their mornings? What are the first things they do? You know, how can I replicate that? Like, what, what do I need? How can I set my day up? How can I bookend my day? How can I finish my day? Well, like all that sort of stuff. So, so I can be elite, right. And, but I can isolate on those people on LinkedIn or on Instagram or whatever it is, or on YouTube, I'm on YouTube a lot. And I just press play and start watching these videos by, you know, by, you know, David nurse and by, you know, Ed Molitor and these people. And I'm just sitting there going, man, this is right. I think people need to figure out what they can plug into consistently that will inspire them to, to, to continue to have the motivation to head down their, that track, right? You all like, we need to build momentum. We need to build confidence. You need to like the 75 day hard challenge that I did where you're 75 days in and you're like, man, I've got momentum. My life is changing. Right. And, but we need to figure out what we plug into that inspires us to continue to go down that road. And for me, it's those people. If for me, it is talking to David Nurse and to listen to Ed Milet and Andy Frisella and to talk to Ed Molitor or, you know, or to get notes from like you, Layson, you know, and people that reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm like, this is, this is awesome. Right. And that continues to inspire me and it and continues to uh, wake me up the next day saying, you know what, this stuff isn't stupid right? Um, My team's better. My family's better. I'm better. My community, my people, my boys, like everybody's better. It's, it's worth it. Right. Um, But you, you gotta, yeah, you gotta build that momentum and build the confidence every day with some of that stuff. It it, it can't be every once in a while. It's gotta be every day. Right. Absolutely. So tell us about the podcast, about, about out of the cubicle and and just maybe some lessons you've learned from it and and maybe one or two of the the big ah ahas that you've gotten from your, from meeting and talking to people. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm going to, let me do that. And then I, I do, I know that you want to uh, hear a Majera story and I, I know we're kind of up against, there's one story I really want to share and, and it's a really great story and I'd be really uh, proud to be able to share it. Um, but yeah. Um, and, and I've already forgot your question. No, the podcast podcast. I love it. Absolutely love it. I've rebranded it. I'm sure you could still find it out from the cube. We rebranded it to called, and it's called leading from the arch and we're going to try to make it leadership's leadership, right? But we wanted to really try to isolate on CEOs, entrepreneurs, leadership, and team development experts in the St. Louis Midwest area. Um, you know, we talked to people and this wide net we're throwing, which is great. We're still going to have Ed Molitor on. We have a gentleman on Wednesday from Massachusetts. We're still going to have that, but we're really trying to find and really support the community here in St. Louis. It doesn't mean that listening to it here, you're not going to find value in it if you live in Florida or North Carolina, right? Um, but I just love the opportunity. I go into, I bet you 95% of all my episodes without ever having a conversation with my guest. Um, Some would say that's bad. I talked to one of my good friends uh, Friday night, uh, sand volleyball court, (laughs) which is new for me. Um, And he was asking about the podcast and he was like the time to prep and getting organized and all that. And I'm like, no, not really. Like I, I, I say, hello, good to meet you. And I look at their bio online. I try to find the points that I know are going to be instant questions for me. And we press record and go. And I, what I try to make it with my podcast is if Lason, you, me, and Jeff are just sitting around at Starbucks with a cup of coffee, having a conversation. And that's, that's it. It's just a, 
I don't go in with any canned questions. I had Alan Stein on. I, you know, I had some of these other people on and I know what they're up to. I know what they're into. Otherwise they wouldn't, I wouldn't be interested in, in having them be on the podcast. So I know their background. Um, and, and then we just press record and have a conversation. Um, it's been good for me to just learn how to just, ha- you know, continue to just have that conversation and keep things flowing and get information out for myself and for, you know, the listeners, like what's valuable and, uh, what questions and it is it's about teams but what's been great about it is i've had these amazing conversations that have continued to inspire me i'm able to take that stuff to my teams you know we had um i'm not going to remember his name right now but he was the strength and conditioning coach for the new york yankees for years and he runs his own podcast and we had him on and you know and i was like man this guy would never return my message ever and he did and he came on and had an amazing conversation um and it's just that it's just really getting plugged in and really learning and getting better and um just learning from people right um it is great well i'm going to take yep. you up in a second on that story yeah i really yeah Go ahead. But but if you're going to hang with Layson and I, we might not go to Starbucks, but yeah. we'll have a cocktail, we'll That's have a good. cigar, we'll sit around the grill, and uh, it's the That's same perfect. thing we do on this podcast, George. Yeah, We don't really do a lot of prep. We get great people. We ask some intriguing questions that we think yeah. our listeners would like. But, uh, you know, this has been just inspiring and, and so much fun, really. Yeah. But I'd love to hear a Coach Majera story. Well, I, I've always said this about Majerus, right? Um, one, I, you know, I, again, I wish I had take better, um, a, a better advantage of that opportunity. Um, I was for, I have been fortunate that, and we all have at some point, if you're in this game long enough, you're around really, really successful coaches that you admire, look up to and all that. And I was fortunate, you know, like we were five minutes from the palace at Auburn Hills where the Pistons played up in Detroit for 10 years. We were very lucky that we got tight with them. And, and so we we would go and I'd spend more time at training camp for the Pistons and, you know, notes and notes and notes of everything from, you know, Larry Brown and um, you know, the the gentleman that um, took over after him that I I passed away. Um, Man, I'm, I can't forget remember his name, but all those coaches that rolled in and out of the, the palace and, and with the Pistons, and I just say, you know, and then all the college coaches we've met and spent time with, there was nobody better it, with the game than Coach Majerus. There just wasn't, and I and that's my perspective. Does everybody have their gifts and talents and measuring people up? I don't know how you do that, but when you sit there and think about the people that really understood that game and um, could teach it and could understand it and, and then could break it down and were demanding um, and, and in terms of standard and excellence. There, there was just nobody better than that guy. And, and again, I beat myself up because I was afforded that, right? I sat right there for three years and I, I should have not just sat there for, for three years. I should have slept there for 12 years or for three years. I should have been in there. I should have followed. I, and I had the, every opportunity, uh, every chance to take advantage of that opportunity. And, and, and I just didn't, did I learn a lot? Did I do it? Do it? Did I? Yes, absolutely. But could it have been better for me? Yes. But you know, Majerus was just so demanding, you know, and you know, there's all, you know, there's stories that happen that, you know, that there's, you know, kind of these, you know, if you, if you really want really good coach Majerus stories, follow Keith Van Horn on Twitter, right? Everybody should follow Van Horn because he'll go, once every two months, he'll just start rattling them off. Right. Um, and, 
he, I was there for Van Horn's first three years, right? And he, I mean, he took it, man. Majerus was hard on him, really, really hard on him. Um, but I remember, like, Majerus was just so detailed. He, they let me, because I, I have good penmanship, right? Um, they let me put the scouting report and game plans up on the board. And he was very detailed, very detailed. Like, we'd have, you know, all this. So I would draw, not every game, not all the games, but every once in a while, I would draw up some of these plays. There's probably the coach I looked up to the most while I was at Utah was a, a coach, Tommy Connor, who's amazing. And I looked up to him still this day, just look up to him. Um, and Tommy had great penmanship. So Tommy did most of it, right? But every once in a while I would do it, but then Majerus would come in and just, you know, the curl cut just wouldn't be right. The curl cut just wouldn't be right. And he would just cuss your tail out. He didn't care, right? If you're going to write the game plans on the board, this curl cut's got to be exactly how they're going to do it or the back cut or the flare screen. And it had to be perfect, right? And maybe that's where my penmanship became so detailed, um, you know, that it just had to be done. But, you know, I remember um, we started, you know, he runs all his motion breakdown stuff was just phenomenal. Teaching motion, screening, cutting angles, reading defenders and how to make the appropriate cut, like all that. He broke it down every single day, every single day that, uh, that I was able to be there, right? Um, and, but I was ultimately either taking notes or I was a passer rebounder guy. And I remember, you know, just not knowing who to pass to. And it's not like one ball is in action in his breakdown drills. There's four balls in action on, you know, everybody gets a shot. There's no wasted movement. Everybody gets a rep. Um, it's not one ball, one person, you know, even if four or five people are running double staggers or whatever. Right. But I remember passing the ball to the wrong person and hitting Van Horn in the face when he was a freshman, because I passed it the wrong direction. And I mean, he just doesn't, he doesn't mess around, man, especially if you're a manager or something like that, like, you know, and just get cussed out, you know, and you're just kind of used to it. Right. But he was, you know, what, what I admired about him and that whole program was he was at the right place. He was always at the right school. And because the way he is, he couldn't do that at UCLA. He couldn't do it at Illinois. He couldn't do I, That's my perspective. I could be wrong. It's just a, a pers perspective I have. He was at a place where he got like the second level kid that, that couldn't go to UCLA, couldn't go to Arizona, you know, couldn't go to these places. So he, you know, Van Horn's only offer was Cal. And they told him he was going to play behind Lamont Murray for like three years or two years. And he was like, I don't want to do that. Right. So he was, it wasn't just one of, and he was just a guy. Right. And, but Majerus took those guys and was just so demanding. Um, but that, those groups that he had, those, those guys could take it. Van Horn could take it. Doliak could take it. Andre Miller could take it. You know, Caton could take like all those, Drew Hansen, who, you know, uh, probably scored five points a game, but was so instrumental in all those teams. He could take, those kids could take it. Um, you know, it's not that it wasn't hard. It was hard on them, but they could, they could take it. Um, so yeah, I wish I had maybe a better story. You know, he was, um, the, the, the one just top of mind. I remember after a game, he was relentless with the, with film. We played a game and we sat down. Uh, the team had left the team room. He was done with them. They all took off. We're getting ready to get ready for our next opponent. He presses play on the VCR and he starts rolling. And, and it's like the stories you've heard about his appetite are true. And he's got 10 boxes of pizza, like 10 boxes, large pizzas right next to him. And he's in his probably his underwear or he doesn't have a shirt on and he's just got his USA basketball shorts on. And I think I went in for some pizza and, and he slammed his hand on those pizzas and he's like, go get your effing own. Right. You're like, you're not eating my pizza. Right. And so I was like, all right. You know, and he was just, uh, 
he was just something, you know, but he, he was, you know, he was committed to that game and he was committed to those kids and he was committed to that university. Did he rub people the wrong way? Probably so. Was he hard and demanding and had high standards? Absolutely. Right. He did it his way. I'm not sure Utah will ever have that success in, in my lifetime. You know, it, 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 he was just so good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, th those are some of the things. And I know we're late. I do. Can I just share one story with you all? Oh yeah, take us. Uh, there, there is no time limit. We, okay. we can continue this all night, but I know we can't do that. But no, right? Feel free to share. Yeah, no, right? because I, I want. I, I think this will be good for your listeners, and it's good for my listeners too, and it's good for me leading into a Monday. But I've talked about taking advantage of opportunity a few times, um, and just you know, you know, me even at forty-eight, just making sure I'm doing that. And I just want to tell this story about uh, a player I had that that took advantage of an opportunity, right? Um, like I mentioned earlier, we were really close with the Pistons and we'd go over there quite a bit. So when we went over there, um, one during training camp, one year, I sat in the corner and I just had my notebook open and I was probably with, I'm sure I was with my boss, um, um, Garth Pleasant. And we were sitting there and we were tight with, uh, 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 the assistant general manager. His name was, um, John Hammond. John Hammond is now the, um, GM for the Orlando magic. Um, so he was the assistant GM. He came over and said, Hey, we have an opening for an internship. You guys have anybody in your program that would be an internship. And, and I was sitting there going, man, I'd like that. <laughs> That'd be a cool gig. Right. But we had a senior graduate. I re we, we recruited him, played two years on our JV team and played. He played a lot on our JV team. I, I should say that didn't play then as a junior played on our varsity and didn't play much 12th man and then played on our his, the team as a senior and was 12th man didn't play much at all didn't play much at all and then so but he was a 4.0 student he was a, a church kid great teammate came to work every day didn't play for four years you know all that sort of stuff but still came every day waiting for that opportunity to just kick it and just be great you know and so we said yeah we got this guy he'd be great for you and so they interviewed him. They brought him in. He did an internship with the Pistons. He may have made like eight, 10 bucks an hour or something like that. And it was interesting. Somebody told him, one of the Pistons told him, hey, and his name was John. They said, John, if you want to make it in this league, you need to not rebound and you need to start wearing a suit. Meaning like, if you want to coach, be a coach. But if you want to really figure out how to stay in this league, you need to figure out how this league works in terms of business. So I think John stopped shagging balls and showing up in sweats and started showing up in a suit and he essentially worked with john hammond so they were so uh, the assistant gm at that time joe dumars was the gm so john hammond and uh, my player john became really tight and john started getting really good at the salary cap my john and and so they went on and then the internship ended they kept john on for no money for like a year or two john made no money but he was there every day and he ended up working at trailer parks as a handyman, literally shoving crap out of toilets and fixing, like just doing all that, being a UPS driver, work, sleeping on people's couches that were at the college. Just that's what he did. Right. And then John Hammond became the head coach at the, for the Milwaukee Bucks. And he said, Hey, I'm taking John, my John with him." And then Dumars was like, no, you're not like he's staying here. He was, John had really worked in way to be valuable. And so they got into a tugging war and kind of this bidding match and John Hammond ended up winning. So John, my John ended up going with John Hammond to the Milwaukee Bucks as the director of basketball operations. So he had this great story. He was, 
24 years old and he's with the Milwaukee Bucks and he's instrumental in drafting, scouting and uh, salary cap management. That's his deal, right? So two years ago, three years ago now, maybe John Hammond becomes the GM for the Milwaukee or for the Orlando Magic. So he gets that. And so we all assume that John is my John is going to go with him to Orlando. And my sons and I are watching Sports Center, watching a, doing something, uh, watching Sports Center one night. And at the bottom of the ticker, it says the Milwaukee Bucks are close to naming John Horst as general manager. And I'm like, you got to be kidding. You got to be kidding. And so I'm, I think I may have texted him to see what's going on. And, you know, he said he was on his way to New York, that things are progressing possibly and all that. So long story short, he, he ends up getting the gig. So he's at that point, 34 years old. He's the general manager for the Milwaukee Bucks, the youngest GM in the league until I think the Toronto GM got hired. After his first year, he's executive of the year and is just orchestrating all these trades. And as you all know, and your listeners probably all know, this past year, the Bucks won the world championship, right? And, you know, they gave that trophy, uh, they gave the Eastern Conference Championship trophy to John um, on the court. They gave the world championship after they won the NBA finals to the owners, which, which is cool. But I remember sitting there with John or sitting there watching that. Um, and what a great story about that is when he made, when they were in game six of the finals, he called my old boss, Garth, and said, um, do you want to come to the game? And this was in the morning or maybe that night. And he was like, yes, I want to come. And he goes, oh, he goes, I'll drive over there tomorrow morning. He was like, no, you don't worry. I'm sending a car. I've got you four tickets, bring your grandchildren and got him great seats and um, took care of them. Right. And they won the, and they won, they won at game six. It's a, I love the story because, and I've shared that usually when I speak, but you got to take advantage of these opportunities. Like you've got to sit there. He had, he, that was his goal. His goal was, I'm going to be in the NBA and I'm going to be a lifer and I'm going to be a GM and I'm going to do it a certain way. And he's doing it like he's building the culture there. And there's stories about who he's let go and, and, and coaches, maybe he's let go, but he wanted to get his culture, his people, his language, his service in everything that goes. And I've read stories and talked to people about him and how he does things. Everybody's got a voice, you know, everybody. And it's a team that he, it's nothing about him, according to him, or according to what people say. It's just like, they've got a, a great culture, a great environment, and he is building that, you know, Giannis could have left for a lot of money other places, but he was like, this is where I want to be. So I want to, I, I love that story about, his name's John Horst, um, done an amazing job, super proud of him. But this is a guy that was 12th man on, on a college team and I recruited him because he was a 4.0 student and he was a church kid and we needed good people in our program. Um, and he made the most of it. He did not waste his days. He won every day. And when he saw opportunity was in front of him, he busted through the door and he got it done and he's changing lives, right? He's like changing lives being, you know, and just really doing well. So I love sharing that story. I know that takes us over a little bit, but um, I thought maybe you guys would get a kick out of it. It's a great story and and makes me a big Bucks fan. And I go to, I try to go to Memphis once every once in a while to see him and, and have my boys and uh, my, my stepdaughter, you know, go down there and see him. So um, and he's always, he's still great. Like I, I, I texted him at the start of the year and I was like, John, Get your ring size because this is the year. Get your ring size because you're going to win it this year. And luck and and they were able to. So you know, good for him. So 
though that that is a great story and uh you know i I would be a I would be a fan of his after hearing that conversation, but now I have to be a Pelicans fan. Just because now of 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 recent uh recent events. But uh no, yeah. George, this has been this has been a great conversation. I, I'm sure Jeff feels the same way that I uh, just love sh- you know, hearing your passion, hearing, you know, how much you want us to grow and get better oh, and yeah. change lives and, and bring value to people and everything you do. And that's what this is about as well. So we're, we're just so thankful you could take time out of your schedule to be with us. Oh, anytime. I've really enjoyed this. Appreciate, you know, um, all the support that you've given me and what I'm trying to do on the social media platforms. It's been great. You know, t- I was talking with you a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, it's one of those things you just, if you can just serve people, help people have conversations with like-minded people that are driven and, and purposeful and all that, man, it makes life great, man. It's, uh, it goes too fast, you know? Um, so, you know, I, I encourage everybody to just like wake up tomorrow. It's Monday. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to plan my day out. I'm going to figure out how to get a win tomorrow. I'm going to figure out how to be a good dad and husband, you know, and, and just try to, uh, try to impact my teams tomorrow. So absolutely. I love it. I appreciate, I appreciate your time. Both of you. Thank you. Jeff, any, any final thoughts? Yeah, this was great. The biggest thing I'll take, and it's a compliment, it's a phrase I use, but George is an everyday person. And I think <laughs> when you can tell people you're an everyday person, that's that's a great compliment. Coach, I'm excited. I can't wait. I'll do anything for you. This was just a fun, fun night. Thank you yeah. again. Yeah. Great way to spend the evening. So yeah, thank you. But yeah, whatever I can do, like I know your audience, You know, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active. Um, you know, our podcast is changing. If anybody, you know, wants to listen to that and, and give me any feedback on that, it's appreciated. But yeah, I'm usually on LinkedIn, you know, quite a bit. So, um, you know, if people want to reach out and, and connect with me, I'd love that. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I'm going to go ahead, go ahead and bring this to a close here, the recording. Sure. And again, thank you for being a part of this. And we'll look forward to connecting with everybody again here soon.